traditionally in church history, week two of Advent has been about preparation. I don't know if you've prepared for Christmas yet or not, but my wife, Joanne, love her. If we've been married for about 13 years, got me out there about a month ago, like the second week in November, and had me putting up Christmas lights. It's 70 degrees outside. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. It just doesn't seem right. I'm not a preparer. I don't like decorating, but she's got me out there. And she wants to get ready for Christmas because she loves Christmas. She loves the lights. She loves the music. She loves the family time. She loves giving gifts. And because she loves it, she anticipates it and she prepares for it mentally and decorating everything. She gets us geared up and our kids, Eli, our five-year-old and Isaac, our one and a half year old are absolutely loving this season to help me feel a little bit better about being out there in November, putting up Christmas lights. She forwards me this article. I think it was out of the Washington Post. It said, those who prepare, those who put up their Christmas lights early actually have a better Christmas season. So that's what I'm looking forward to, a little bit better Christmas season, because I'm kind of of the nature that if I delay, if I drag my feet, maybe Christmas will delay too. Maybe it won't come. But the reality is, is whether I'm prepared for it or not, Christmas is coming. And this is why this is important, because Christmas is all about God being with us. And this is what we're, the season, the series is about, is that God with us ends our loneliness, Something that changes within us, ends our loneliness, helps us to feel more connected. Well, there's a book that I've been reading. It's called Together by Vivek Murthy. He's the 19th Surgeon General to the United States. He talks about the power of human connection. I want to read you his quote about loneliness. Loneliness is a subjective feeling that you're lacking social connections you need. It can feel like being stranded, abandoned, or cut off from the people with whom you belong even if you're surrounded by other people. He goes on to talk about three areas of connection that are vital if we want to overcome loneliness. And the first is intimate relationships. And then relational or social connections. And then finally, the collective or communal experience. Why that's important is because he says when one of those areas is off, it affects all three. If one aspect of our relationships is just not connecting on all cylinders, the rest are impacted. Now, what I believe uh, the Christian church holds is that the primary, the ultimate relationship upon which every other relationship depends is our connection with God. If we don't have that right, every other relationship suffers. And so we got to look at this situation and, and say, okay, how am I connected with God? And how does that impact every other relationship? It's been described within the church that loneliness is homesickness for God. Loneliness is homesickness for God. God is the one with whom we ultimately belong. And if we want to have that feeling of connection, we've got to get connected to him. So the question this morning is, how do we dig deeper into this relationship so that we feel connected, we experience joy, and ultimately a more meaningful life? Mark 1, verses 1 through 4. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the first thing to note here is that Mark jumps straight to the point. He says, this is good news. See, Matthew and Luke start with a birth narrative. 
they tell a little bit of background. And John begins at the beginning of creation in John 1. But Mark says, okay, let's skip all that. The person we have been waiting for is finally here. We've been anticipating him, and now he has arrived, and it's good news. Now, for the Jew in the first century Greco-Roman world, this term good news, euangelion in Greek, actually refers to a messenger coming ahead of a king who has just been victorious in battle. So get the picture. A king has just defeated the enemy. He's defeated evil. And a messenger is running back to the city to tell the people that live there, your king has been victorious and your whole lives are changed. The enemy has been defeated and you are victorious. Let us prepare the way for him. Let us get ready. Let us anticipate him and celebrate when he returns. That's what Mark is telling us, that the king we have been awaiting for has finally arrived. And that's why he quotes these three passages from Exodus 23, Malachi 3, and Isaiah 40. Prepare the way of the Lord, because the coming king, the victorious king, is finally arriving. Now, each of these passages from the Old Testament takes place in a period of exile. And exile is separation from God, separation from others, separation from who you were supposed to be and where you were supposed to be. And the coming king to the place of exile means that all of that is finally going to be restored. It was going to be overcome and we were to celebrate and anticipate it. For the longest time, I looked at this passage as if I was the one that had to prepare the way for Jesus's coming. That there was something in my life that held him back from coming, from wanting to be part of my life. I needed to be the one making things easy for him to come in. But if we look at this in the proper context, Jesus has already come. You and I know this. I mean, that's why we celebrate Christmas 2,000 years later, because Jesus has already come. But I live my life as if his coming is dependent on my actions, on my beliefs, on my behavior. And that's not what this passage is telling us. Mark says it's good news because he has come and is coming. This passage, if we look at verse 4, is fulfilled by John the Baptist. It says John the Baptist came in the wilderness, preaching this good news. Jesus has already come and it changes everything for us. Now, Miroslav Volf, he writes a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And I love this book. I love this guy. The way he describes it is awesome. And he talks about this divine embrace. He breaks down the five steps of a hug. Can you believe it? There's five steps to a hug. Many of you have never even thought of that. Most of you are like, no, you just give a hug. Some of you are real huggers. We know that when we see you coming, we're going to get a hug and it's going to be a big hug. Arms are out open wide before we even get to you. We know you're a hugger. I'm not a hugger. I like the handshake, the eye contact, maybe a high five. I'm just not a hugger. But he breaks down these steps to a hug. And I want to just give you the first three. This blew my mind when I thought about it. I never even thought there were multiple steps to a hug. The first one, arms open. It's an invitation. It's letting the other person know that they are invited into a relationship, into a hug with you. And then the second step is a period of waiting, this uncertain anticipation if the other person is going to respond similarly. And then finally, in these three steps, there is the closing the arms, this embrace that takes place where each person is holding the other and being held. 
It's a conclusion of a relationship, this idea that people come together in agreement and reciprocity and that things are established as the way it should be. They're responding to one another. And what I believe Mark is telling us is that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has come down to earth already and he has opened his arms to us. He's extended his love, he's extended a relationship, and he's signaled to us that he wants to welcome us in. And he stands there now in welcome anticipation, waiting to see what our response is going to be. Now, John, last week, talked about how we were driven by two main emotions, fear and love. Fear and love drive so many things in our lives, how we behave, how we act, how we think about things. And it's true with this verse. Whether we see God through a lens of fear or through a lens of love translates everything for verse 4. Verse 4 gets down to the bottom line of what we are to do. So if we're not John the Baptist, if we're not the one preparing the way for Jesus Christ because he has already come, he's already opened his arms to us, then what is our response? Whether we view God through fear or love dictates how we read this verse. Verse 4. John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now we got to get down to this word repentance. What does repentance mean, first of all? It means turning back to a relationship, turning away from something and turning towards something else. Well, the other day, Eli and Isaac were playing behind the couch. Eli's five, Isaac's one and a half, and Joanne and I were sitting in the living room. They were out of sight. They were on the other side of the couch, and they were playing fairly nicely until all of a sudden we hear this blood-curdling scream out of Isaac. I mean, bloody murder scream. And so Joanne and I pop up and trying to get a picture of what's happening. Before we can turn the corner to see what has happened, Eli jumps up from behind the back of the couch and says, I didn't bite him. He bit himself. Now some red flags are going off, right? Like if you have a kid, you know that that's a red flag. Anytime a confession comes out like that. Now there's a couple things that causes us to pause. Eli, we had suspected had bitten him once before. And so that's in our back of our mind. Then we look at Isaac's arm and we realize that a lot of people don't usually bite themselves to the point of making themselves scream in pain. Like that's just not normal, right? Like hopefully Isaac isn't doing that. The other thing that we realize is that there is a full set of teeth on Isaac's arm. Isaac ain't quite there yet. And his mouth isn't that big. So we got a lot of stuff going on. So once we've kind of amassed the details and kind of built the case, what does Eli do? He looks and says, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. He's repenting, right? I'm never going to do it again. I'm turning from that way of life. But it's a fear-based repentance, right? Like he is afraid of the consequences. He's afraid of the, the confrontation that's going to happen. If he doesn't come out with it and say, hey, I'll never do it again, there's, there's a fear element there, right? That's what I feel a lot of us approach God like. A fear-based response to God that, you know, we do something we don't like, we do something we know we probably shouldn't be doing, and we look at God and say, okay, God, I won't do it again. As if those words earn forgiveness. It's our desire to reestablish relationship without experiencing the pain, without wanting to see the consequences. It's trying to avoid stuff. And most times it's because we view God as an angry God that's just sitting there waiting to lay the hammer down on us. It's a fear-based repentance. 
And what Jesus does when he comes on the scene is he opens his arms. And what is the most vulnerable expression of love? You know, most of the time, fear-based puts up our guard, right? Puts up our guard. But God opens his arms. He's completely vulnerable. And he says, I want to change your opinion of me from a fear-based opinion to a love-based opinion. That changes how we read verse 4. See, in the Greek, this this phrase, repentance for the forgiveness of sin, is ambiguous. So there's some scholars that say, no, we repent in order to get forgiveness. But a love-based response says we repent because there is forgiveness. There's a relationship that has been established, and that changes everything. A fear-based repentance is groveling. Fear-based repentance is groveling. It's seeing God as if he's off in the corner somewhere with his arms crossed, with his back toward us. And we have to go to God and say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, I'll never do it again. And you're earning his attention. A love-based repentance is a gift. It's a gift because he's already extended to us relationship. And when a relationship is present, that gives us the opportunity to repent, an opportunity to return to the person that we've hurt. An opportunity to return and experience forgiveness. See, forgiveness is a gift that comes to us freely. And repentance is the pathway to experiencing that forgiveness. It's not the cause of forgiveness. Repentance is the pathway to forgiveness. It's not the cause for forgiveness. So we have to ask, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind, It's a change in our heart, and it's a change in our action. A change in our mind, our heart, and our actions. You know, many of us have this change in our mind where we look at something and say, I don't like that. I don't like doing that. I don't like that habit. I don't like that experience. I want to leave that behind. But nothing ever changes in our heart, so we keep going back to that habit. We love something about that habit, the feeling it gives us, the experience that we have, What we need to do is replace that love with something greater. We need to replace that love in our heart with something greater. And once our minds have identified, okay, I don't want that anymore, and our our hearts find an affection for something greater, that turns us, and it starts driving our behavior, our actions. That's what true repentance is, is when we turn away from something and we wholeheartedly commit to something else, in this case, It's returning to a relationship with God. Now, Jesus says that this is the greatest commandment. And he draws from Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's repentance. When we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, what it does is it directs us toward God. And it allows us to respond to God's open arms, whereby we walk into his love and we enter into that divine embrace. No matter what my five-year-old does, whether he's bitten his brother, whether he shot him in the face with a Nerf gun at point-blank range, it's only happened a couple times, whether he's disobeyed me, screamed at me, or lied to me to get away with something he knew he shouldn't be doing, I want him to know above all else that he can always come to me because my love is always there. Fear pushes people away. Love draws them in. I want him to know he can always come to me because my love for him is not based on his behavior or his actions. It's based on who he is. He is my son. 
And no matter what happens, my arms are open wide to him. This is the story of Luke 15, the prodigal son. The son looks at his father and says, I want nothing to do with you. I want your money and I want to go live my own life. And he goes and he squanders the money. He runs into all kinds of hard times. And he says, man, my life would be so much better with the father. And what does he do? He returns out of fear. He prepares to go back groveling, trying to earn his way back in. He says, maybe if I'm just a servant, the servants live better than I'm living. And he goes back ready to grovel for the father's forgiveness. And what does the father do? The father in Luke 15 sees him coming a long way off and he runs out to him. What's the first thing the father does? He opens his arms to his son. And before the son can begin groveling, he wraps his arms around his son and communicates that my love for you, my forgiveness for you is always here. He doesn't let him go down this path of groveling because it doesn't matter because the relationship was always there. When there is a relationship, there is an opportunity for repentance. There's an opportunity to return. So the question is, who is turning to whom? When we think of repentance, who's doing the turning? Is it God with his arms crossed and his back to us and we're trying to get his attention? Or is it like the sun, something that happens inside of us that has to turn back toward God? God is standing there with his arms open wide and repentance is our opportunity to change what's going on inside of us. Repentance is a change within us, not a change within God. Repentance is a change within us, not a change within God. Mark is all about this reality that God has come on the scene in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has overcome evil. He's overcome the enemy. He's overcome the separation. He's overcome loneliness. He's become with us. And in that process, he has opened his arms to us and welcomed us in. He stands eternally with those arms open, looking at us and saying, you are my son, you are my daughter. I am here no matter what. I love you. Will you turn and respond? Will you open your arms and take me in as well? This is how we prepare for Christmas. This is how we end loneliness, by acknowledging that God has come down to be with us. And my task is to turn from the things that separate me from God, and give my life wholeheartedly, my mind, my heart, my actions to him. To see him with his arms wide open toward us, giving us the opportunity to respond in like, to open our arms and continue with the embrace. So what do I need to do so that Christmas can begin? So that my loneliness, my disconnection for God, my homesickness for God can end. As I thought about this message, I began thinking about all the things that kind of pull me away. And today I repent of how many times I allow fear instead of love to drive my relationships. How I too frequently try to avoid the consequences rather than turning to the other person in value of the relationship. I'm trying to protect myself. I repent for trying to control my emotions by controlling those around me. I repent for trying to keep so busy, my head down and focused on the task at hand so that I can ignore kind of that disconnection from God. I repent most of all for blaming God for being distanced when he is standing there with arms wide open. And it's too often myself pushing him away 
or doing the things that turn my back to him. I repent for those things. I want to turn wholeheartedly to who Jesus is because when I prepare myself in that way, when I repent and turn to him, that allows me to experience Christmas in its fullest meaning. That allows me to enter into this space where I'm fully known and fully loved. When I become open with God, it changes everything. It helps me feel more connected. It helps me to experience joy and find a more meaningful life. What do you need to repent of today so that Christmas can begin? What do you need to turn from in order that you might turn toward and experience the divine embrace of God? Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much that you have sent your son to be with us. That in his coming, he communicated your great love and he opened his arms to us. We ask this morning that you would help us to turn back toward him, to see and experience his great and powerful, unfailing love for us, that he is not standing off in the corner with arms crossed, waiting for us to say and do the right thing, but he is standing there with arms wide open, with his face toward us, smiling over us and saying, I welcome you back in. Help us to come home today, that we can experience you where we are fully loved and fully known. In Jesus' name, amen.